بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حق حمده والصلاة والسلام على محمد رسوله وعبده وعلى آله وأصحابه من بعده السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome to the beginning of guidance brought to you by Misquimen, the Muslim Institute for Sacred Knowledge. I welcome you to our third online class and inshallah everybody can hear. So there's been a couple of connection problems here in the Emirates but inshallah that won't affect us from now on. So we will start inshallah and of course with our dua of Imam Haddad for seeking knowledge and as we've said uh, many times before this dua is uh, what we read when we are making sure that our intention for learning is sound and purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and inshallah that's what Imam Ghazali exhorts us to and counsels us to to make sure that whatever we learn is purely for his sake and inshallah something that will benefit us and that we can benefit others by as is mentioned here in the dua so if you can read it in arabic please do otherwise read it in english inshallah bismillahirrahmanirrahim nawaitu ta'alluma wa ta'alim wa tadhakkura wa tadhkir wa nafa' wa al-intifa' wa al-ifada wa al-istifada والحث على تمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسول صلى الله عليه وسلم والدعاء إلى الهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء وجه الله ومرضاته وكربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى آمين We'll just go over our class etiquettes again for those who might be joining us for the first time. Ahlan wa sahlan if you are and of course ahlan wa sahlan if you have joined us before and are continuing. Um, the picture of the lady here I think kind of I put there to, to show that wherever we are whatever we're doing whether we're in a park or at home or in the car Inshallah, our learning has been facilitated and certainly become far more mobile than it used to be. So maybe she sort of um, represents for us a, a modern way for us to learn, inshallah, which is anywhere, basically. So just to go over quickly, uh, please keep your screen and sound away from your menfolk. Uh, please enter the meeting with your registration name and not the name of your telephone or initials or numbers or anything please put your full name in just so we can be comfortable and sure that everybody here is uh, female and that it is uh, really a sisters only group um, if possible be in a state of wudu and if you can't be uh, perhaps you're not praying or whatever at the moment um, and even if you can be in a state of wudu then do try and cover your hair so if it's cold where you are then pull up your hoodie and if it's hot then at least just drape something over your head inshallah and all questions will be asked at the end of the class where you are welcome to write at any time in the chat and we will open the chat at the end and if you would like at that time to unmute yourself your microphone and ask a question or make a comment then of course you are very very welcome and encouraged to do so also, please download and join our Telegram group specific to this class. 
as all notifications, uploads, changes, cancellations, etc., will be made in that group, inshallah, rather than on Facebook or Instagram um, or, or any other platform. And uh, again, please contact us at miskwomen at gmail.com or on Facebook or on Instagram or on Telegram for any inquiries or anything at all, inshallah. Okay, again, this is our um, plan or outline or map of the book. And uh, for those who are just joining us, uh, just to remind you that part one, which is the area with the gray background on the left, uh, that has been covered in our podcast episodes, uh, episode number four to 22. And the middle part where there's the blue highlight, that's what we're up to now. And our previous two classes have also been uploaded. Um, so you can listen to those, that's just the class recording. And that will be that was episode 23 and 24. So today would be, uh, inshallah, once it goes up, inshallah will be 25. So we've looked at the performance of acts of obedience and worship in that series, and we are in this middle part looking at the section on avoiding acts of disobedience and focusing on the sins of the limbs. So we've covered the eyes and the ears. And now we are up to the tongue, of which there are eight particular sins that Imam Ghazali identifies in this text. In the Ihya al-Umad-Din, his uh, magnum opus, he identifies 20, um, 20 transgressions of the tongue. But because the Bidaya till he died, the beginning of guidance is a much shorter text and meant for lay people, then he has identified uh, eight only. So inshallah today we will be looking at the first of those bi'idnillah okay so the sins of the tongue we did have a bit of an introduction to that in our last lesson and uh, there was a, a paragraph in Imam Jawi's commentary uh, may Allah benefit us by Imam Ghazali and by Imam Jawi, uh, the great commentator who has provided us quite a comprehensive um, analysis and um, what can I say not, it's not a description but it's a expansion of what Imam Ghazali has written um, in the Bidaya Till He Die which he wrote after the Ihyalumuddin so a lot of what Imam al-Jawi puts in here in terms of commentary comes from the Ihya um, and he, of course he has drawn on many many other sources as well and we did have a bit of a look at a sample page of that last week uh, where we just took one paragraph and were able to see that in that particular paragraph there were 11 different types of knowledge and his uh, personal contribution was actually quite minimal in terms of the words that he wrote but his personal contribution is, his, uh, is the breadth and the depth of his knowledge and his ability to put that all together um, pitched at a particular level of reader um, and in a way that is able to uh, discuss and really bring out the meanings that he thought Imam Ghazali was intending in this particular book. So there was a paragraph there uh, which I just wanted to bring to your attention because he said in the last part before we go on to the first of the transgressions which is lying he said that 
there are actually four types of speech. Or rather, I mean that a speech can be divided into four parts. And he says one quarter of it is pure harm. One quarter consists of pure benefit. One quarter is a mix of harm and benefit. And one quarter has no harm and no benefit. So when it comes to pure harm in a person's speech, then of course they should abstain from that completely, either speaking that or listening to it. Um, as for the pure benefit, we'll come to that last. And for speech that has harm and benefit like a mix, then the benefit in it doesn't really compensate for the harm. So if it's mixed speech, then the person speaking should try and be aware of what they're saying and try and avoid uh, speaking in a way that doesn't, where the good doesn't outweigh the bad in it. And as for the quarter where there's no harm and no benefit, then that's a complete waste of time and that a person shouldn't indulge in such nonsense. And then as for the quarter of all speech, which is of pure benefit, he says, you should be very careful actually, because even though what you're saying has got pure benefit in it, perhaps for the listener, for the speaker, there is still some danger of sin because the speech that you're making could be mixed with ostentation, with the riyah of showing off. It could have some type of pretense in it where the speaker is pretending that they really know what they're talking about and they don't. It could have some backbiting or it could be tainted with some type of illness in the heart that the speaker may or most likely may not be aware of that actually gets manifested in their speech, even if the content of the speech is good. So a person still needs to be very aware of themselves, their intentions, the state of their heart and what they're saying. And uh, Imam Ujawi also says that uh, Sayyidina Luqman, uh, of who there was Luqman al-Hakim, of who there is a, a whole a chapter in the Quran named after him, that it is said that he said that if speech is silver, then silence is gold. And Abdullah ibn Mubarak, who was one of the great Arifin of the Tabi'in, one of the great knowers of Allah, he said regarding that, that if speech is in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it is like silver. And if silence is from disobedience and from anything that transgresses or sins, then that silence is like gold. So that was just what I wanted to bring as a conclusion from our introduction from last week. And inshallah, we will go on to the first of the eight transgressions of the tongue, which is lying. So Imam Ghazali says in the Bidayat al-Hidayah, and may we benefit from him, فَحْفَذْ مِنْهُ لِسَانَكَ فِي الْجِدِّ وَالْهَزَلْ وَلَا تُعَوِّدْ نَفْسَكَ الْكَذِبَ هَزْلًا فَيَدْعُوكَ إِلَى الْكَذِبِ فِي الْجِدِ وَالْكَذِبُ مِنْ أُمَّهَاتِ الْكَبَائِرِ He says, keep your tongue from lying or prevent it from lying, whether in earnest or in jest. Do not accustom yourself to lying in jest, for it may lead to you lying in earnest. Lying is one of the major transgressions. And then he says, ثُمَّ إِنَّكَ إِذَا عُرِفْتَ بِذَلِكَ سَقَطَتْ عَدَالَتُكَ وَثِكَتُ بِقَوْلِكَ وَتَزْدَرِكَ الْعَيُونُ 
وتحتقرك فإذا أردت أن تعرف كبح الكذب من نفسك فانظر إلى كذب غيرك وإلى نفرة نفسك عنه واستحقارك لصاحبه واستكباحك لما جاء به وكذلك فافعل في جميع عيوب نفسك فإنك لا تدري كبح عيوبك من نفسك بل من غيرك فما استقبحته من غيرك يستقبح غيرك منك لا محالة فلا ترضى لنفسك ذلك So he says that if you become known as a liar your uprightness and the confidence that people might have in your statements are lost and you will be seen as contemptible and lowly in people's eyes sisters can you just make sure your cameras are off please if you want to know how despicable lying is consider someone else's lying how repelled you feel by it how you disdain the liar and deem his action as immoral do the same regarding your other faults for you do not know the ugliness of your own faults except by seeing them in others that which you regard as abominable in others is regarded by them as equally as abominable in you and do not be content with these faults in yourself So the first part is quite self-explanatory and when talking about jest and lying in jest it means lying in jokes but there's a section coming up about that afterwards so we will discuss that. So if a person is used to fooling around and uh, talking nonsense all the time which has got um, lying in it then it's difficult for them sometimes to be serious and to speak the truth in a serious situation so that's what's being uh, alluded to here. And then um, Imam Jawi tells us that when Imam Ghazali says that uh, that lying is min ummahat al-kabair, one of the major transgressions. So ummahat is a plural of um, which means mother. So when it's from the mother of, of transgressions, it means it's from the most. Uh, it means it's from the source of all transgressions. Okay, so things that go wrong in a person's life often begin with lying a little white lie here a little bit of a tail there and then that's the type of thing when that action is established and becomes the basis of how someone conducts themselves through lies then it's upon that that other sins are built because now a person will find as a result of their lying that something more serious has happened or something they can't get out of or something worse so it's like a snowball effect so if a person establishes themselves in lying, then it's very, very hard to get out of that. And there's a well-known hadith here where the Prophet wasallam has said, Alaykum bisidqi. He says, and, and you must have, or it is upon you to be truthful and to speak the truth. And it says that for indeed, truth guides or brings one to piety, and piety brings or guides one to paradise. And a person remains or continues to be truthful and to seek to be truthful until they are written with Allah as Siddiqan. So somebody who is known to be very, very truthful, absolutely truthful. And then the hadith continues, al-kadib, And be very aware of lying. 
For indeed, lying guides to corruption, and corruption guides to the fire. And a person continues to lie and to seek to lie until they are written with Allah as kadab. So somebody who is a continuous and constant liar. And so the two forms there, Siddiq and Kadhab, are what's called Sira Mubalara. So these, if you know about Sarf, about morphology and the construction of words in Arabic, these are intensive forms. So it's not Sadiq, somebody who tells the truth, it's Siddiq. It's someone who, it's someone who is uh, constantly and firmly rooted in telling the truth or someone who is constantly and firmly rooted in lying. Then he goes on to tell us about if it is that you become known as a liar and how the confidence that people have in you will be lost and the trust in what you say will be lost. And therefore there is no value in what you have to say. So those things are, are fairly self-explanatory and there's a large a paragraph which Imam al-Jawi has here and he talks about the permissibility of lying and when it is possible um, and in some cases even obligatory for a person to, uh, to say something which isn't true. However, the condition for that is that it has to be absolutely daruri, so it has to be totally necessary in order to ward off harm. So a person can tell something untrue or speak a lie if it is that the harm that they are protecting from um, is, is, so if it's better for them to keep harm away and that that is more significant than the words that they actually speak in order to do that. And so there are really three occasions uh, when this would be necessary. So there, first of all, it would be in wartime. So it becomes obligatory on you to lie if it is, for example, that you're caught by the enemy and they want to know where the army is, where your army is. So of course you have to lie in order to protect yourself and in order to protect your army and your side. So if they ask where are they and you know your army's in the south, then you can tell them that they're in the north. Okay, so in that case, the amount of harm that could be caused by you telling the truth is so extreme that you're actually obliged to lie. Okay, so that would be clear. Another example is when you're trying to bring two arguing or disputing parties together. So for example, that might be siblings who, are ha who have fallen out and you're trying to reconcile between them or it could be between colleagues or um, other any other relationship where you can see that there needs to be reconciliation and some type of reparation um, of that relationship so that people do not uh, stay in a state of hatred or dislike towards each other because that's a very very bad state to be in so in that case uh, the harm that you are preventing them from is considered in relation to the type of words that you would say so if you're able to uh, protect people and bring people together for a greater good then that is considered far uh, weightier and far better than the small amount of things that you would say which might be an extension of the truth or not necessarily that true so for example if you had perhaps a child or your husband or somebody say your daughter comes home and she says she's 
uh, one of her colleagues at her new job is uh, really giving her a hard time and she doesn't think she can work with this person and so she tells you all about it and you think to yourself subhanallah you know that person has some major nafs problem but you know that it's better for your daughter to try and reconcile and learn to get along with that person then you can say to her even though you're doubtful because you think this person might be extremely narcissistic or extremely power hungry or ruthless and whatever you think about that person with regards to what your daughter has said for example you can say to her oh i'm sure she's lovely and i'm sure you just haven't seen her best side and um i'm sure that you'll find that if you just try a little bit you'll be able to get on with her so in that case even though you're not convinced that the situation is good that little bit of untruth with regards to how you would encourage your daughter to try and rectify the situation and look at it in a good way from her point of view then that's what's important here so the good that you're trying to bring outweighs the fact that you've said something that's a bit untrue okay or something that you don't fully believe to be true and then the third case where it's permissible is between husband and wife and a husband should know that you say his wife gets dressed up to go out and even if he thinks that it's not she doesn't look that good or but she thinks she does and she says how do I look and he says oh you look absolutely fantastic um, then even if he doesn't really believe it then he should tell her that um, to keep her heart calm and to keep her feeling good about herself um, and so that's permissible too and in the case of husband and wife then it might even be required sometimes so men don't usually have such sensitivity when it comes to such things like if you saw your husband get dressed to go out in a shirt that you don't think he looks nice in then you can say no, I don't like that on you I think you should change and men don't really get so upset about these things but women do women are very sensitive about that so a man should learn how to speak to his wife to make her feel good even if there's a little bit in it that he might not necessarily feel is true however the harm that um, a person might fall in is when they start to make their own scale or their own judgment about what is good what is harmful what would be permissible and what isn't so a person might think oh great all i have to do is look at a situation and decide for myself mm, is there more harm in lying or is there more harm in letting this situation go on so they become their own judge about whether they think they should or shouldn't uh, embroider the truth or extend the truth or maybe even come out with a lie and so that's a problem because if people don't stay within these sort of three categories of the necessity of lying in a war situation or to reconcile between people or to maintain a good relationship between husband and wife then what they're actually doing is trying to take the situation into their own hands and will most likely make a mess of it and judge something upon their ignorance and misjudge the situation in doing so so in order to keep yourself safe from falling into unlawful talk and lying then try and keep within those categories inshallah so um, that's really uh, what's mentioned here in this paragraph and then Imam Ghazali goes on to the next 
uh, transgression of the tongue, which would be breaking a promise. And he says here, Athani al khulfu fil wa'at. Fa'iyaka an ta'ida bi shay'in wa la tafiya bih, bal yambaghi an yakuna ihsanuka ila nasi fi'lan bila qawl. Fa'an itturirta ila al-wa'di fa'iyaka an tukhlifa illa li ajzin aw taruratin. Fa'inna thalika min amaratin nifaqi wa khaba'itha al-akhlaq. قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ثلاث من كن فيه فهو منافق وإن صام وصلى من إذا حدث كذب وإذا وعد أخلف وإذا تمن خان Take care not to promise something and then fail to fulfill this promise. Rather let your beneficence to people be in your action without any words or promises. If you are compelled to make a promise, be careful not to break it, except if you are unable to fulfill it or from compulsion, because breaking a promise is one of the signs of hypocrisy, nifaq, and bad character. Thus the Prophet has said, there are three things which, if they are hidden in a person, render him a hypocrite, a munafiq, even if he fasts and prays. When he speaks, he lies. When he makes a promise, he breaks it. And when he is given a trust, he betrays it. And that is narrated by Ahmed. So what does Imam Ujawi tell us about that? He says, first of all, when it comes to a person... Oh, hang on. Oh, he says with regards to the hadith and those three qualities that these actually refer to somebody who can't rid themselves of those qualities. So it might be that someone out of uh, not knowing or ignorance or something like that, they, they tell a lie, for example, because they can't handle the situation or perhaps they don't understand the situation. Or it might be that a person does make a promise to do something and they break it. Um, or if they're given a trust, for example, then they might betray it. But this is not their ordinary way of being. So it refers specifically to somebody who is so um, embedded in these types of behavior that they're not able to overcome that aspect of themselves. And so that would be signs of hypocrisy in them. And there's another hadith which says that there are four signs or four things that uh, qualities that if a person has in them then they will be considered a hypocrite and um, in this one the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam has said i'll just get a better translation here he said um That if a person is entrusted with something, then they break the trust. If they speak, then they lie. And if they make a promise or a contract, then they break that. And when they speak, they are oppressive in their... When they argue, sorry, then they become oppressive in the sense that they want to uh, 
belittle that person and show all the faults of that person so they don't necessarily argue about a point for the sake of the point but they argue in order to crush the person or the opposition who they are arguing with so if a person has those qualities completely then they are considered also a complete hypocrite so this is some of the texts which show where um, these um, bad qualities come from and what they're related to. And we ask Allah to uh, protect us and purify us, inshallah, from all those qualities if we have them or we have exhibited them before. And so Imam Ujawi says here that what is intended by the word hypocrisy is hypocrisy in a person's deeds and not in their belief and it might also mean hypocrisy which is customary or cultural and not necessarily shari so it doesn't necessarily mean that they have transgressed something of the sharia but there might be something in the way that people conduct themselves customarily or in their culture that if you did that then it would be considered wrong but it might actually be quite sound in terms of the sharia so it's not for people to go and look at others and point fingers and judge and say oh my goodness you made a, a promise and you broke it therefore you're a hypocrite no it's deeper than that and it's more subtle and as well as being deep it's actually quite broad so people shouldn't be there trying to judge others uh, but they should just overlook things hopefully deal with any fallout um, or aftermath of such a situation and uh, and try and improve themselves and be of benefit to others so that others might be able to look at themselves and benefit and improve themselves as well inshallah so that's what's said here about uh, breaking of a promise so we'll go on to the next one now which is backbiting and this is uh, a longer section so I won't read the Arabic because it's quite long and already we have two um, slides of translation here. Um, so Imam Ghazali says, Bismillah in the translation, that he says, guard the tongue from backbiting. And then he mentions here or quotes part of a hadith, for backbiting is more serious than 30 acts of adultery, as is reported in a narration. The meaning of backbiting is the mention of anything concerning someone in a way he would dislike if he were to hear it. Doing this makes you a backbiter and a wrongdoer, even if what you say is true. Be careful to avoid the backbiting of ostentatious Quran reciters and we'll come to explain what that means in a moment inshallah. This means that you make others understand indirectly saying for example oh may God rectify him I'm saddened and worried by what's happened to him I ask Allah to rectify both us and him and Imam Ghazali says that this oh sorry not insulation Oh, how did that word get in? This insinuation is what it should be, uh, combines two evil acts. One is backbiting, as people can understand the point being made about the fault of the person of whom you are speaking. And the other is considering yourself virtuous and praising yourself by passing a judgment of evil against someone else and declaring one's own freedom from sin. 
And he says, if your purpose in saying, oh, may God make him better, was really to pray for him, then supplicate for him in secret. If you really are concerned for his sake, then you would not want to disgrace him and reveal his faults. However, your expression of concern over his faults is in reality displaying his faults. So you can see from that that when it comes to backbiting, Imam Ghazali is drawing our attention to the subtleties of it. So there's clear backbiting, explicit backbiting, where people just say really nasty things about people, even if they are true. And then there is another layer and another layer, and it becomes much more subtle and difficult even for the speaker to detect in themselves that they may indeed be backbiting. So Imam Jawi tells us that not only should we take heed from Imam Ghazali's counsel to guard our tongue from backbiting, but we must also um, guard ourselves from quietly and tacitly approving of it and acknowledging it. So that's also one of the subtleties because somebody might say something about someone and you don't respond, but your silence might actually be an, an approval of what that person has said. So you need to be aware of that in yourself. So if you don't get a feeling in your heart that you don't like what has been said, but rather you agree with the person, then you've actually um, shared in that backbiting, even though you didn't say anything, but you listened to it and you thought that that was true. So when Imam Ghazali tells us that it's a mention of anything concerning someone in a way he would dislike if he were to hear it, um, even if what you say is true, then there are several categories mentioned here. And it says here that this could be done through speech, obviously, but also it could be done through gesture. Uh, could be done through a certain look of the eye. So say you're at a, a wedding and somebody walks in in a dress that you think is just the ugliest thing you've ever seen. So you look over at your uh, friend or whoever's there and you use your eyes and sort of gesture with your head like, oh my God, have a look at that. You know, look at that that's just walked in. That's the same thing because even if it's true that that might not be the most beautiful dress in the world, then the fact is that the person that you are mentioning would dislike it should they hear what you've said. So that would be backbiting through a gesture or through a hand, or sorry, through an eye or in a hand or a movement of the head. Um, also through other types of uh, symbolism and particularly writing. And that's something that I don't think we pay enough attention to is what we say about others through our writing all day long. We're writing, we're texting, we're using our thumbs and our fingers and our um, our mice, <laughs> I guess the mouse, the keyboard, to uh, communicate with people and we might not always be aware that that written communication is as well something that could easily lead us to speaking poorly about others even if it was true. So, um, so backbiting really is about um, making another person understand a type of deficiency that you perceive in another Muslim, uh, whether it be with regards to their body, their physical form, or their lineage, uh, their character, 
and also their again their um, their physical form or it might be with regards to a person's action or their speech or the state of their uh, religiosity so their deen or with regards to something to do with their dunya and even he says their clothing their house and their riding animal or in perhaps today we'd say their car so if it is that you're saying something disparaging or indicating something disparaging about any of those things about somebody else and you have made the listener understand that it's something negative about the person with regards to any of those things or other things as well then you have engaged in backbiting and that you have transgressed even if it's true so if someone was to have a cheap car and you said oh that car is really cheap and everybody knows it's cheap um, and the person who's driving it wouldn't like to hear that then that's backbiting even if it's true um, and and or if you say something like oh they're really nice people but I don't understand why they live in that house that's falling down around their ears or why don't they get rid of some of the junk in the back of their house or things like that okay it's true the house might be falling down and there might be heaps of uh, rubbish out the back but the fact that you've said it and they don't like it you've you've uh you've engaged in backbiting so it's a very very subtle then there's another hadith where the prophet sallallahu said and even if what you say is true then you have engaged in backbiting um, or otherwise if it is that what you've said is not true or or the situation doesn't contain uh, what you've said then you have slandered the person so either way you've engaged in something which is a transgression on both levels and then Imam Ghazali warns us and he says be careful to avoid the backbiting of ostentatious Quran reciters now that um, required some further reading in the Ihya and in the commentary on the Ihya about who are these ostentatious Quran reciters what does that actually mean and what it means is the scholars who have some type of ostentation and Imam Jawi tells us that so the type of backbiting that people of knowledge might engage in is of the ugliest and the most vile and the most foul type of backbiting and why is that and what does what does he mean by that because the scholars and the reciters of the Quran uh, used to be the ulama as well so it, that particular name really goes back to that time that Imam Ghazali was in but it, it means the scholars they're the types that because they have access to knowledge and theoretical knowledge written in the book so they get to learn about what all these things are and what all these things mean then they're more readily able to identify things than other people who don't have any knowledge or any book knowledge so they would be able to see for example that somebody because they know the sharia and because they know about teski and purification the states of the heart and all that then they would be able to see where somebody might have done something that wasn't befitting or something um, that wasn't good and so they would be the type for example because of their theoretical knowledge where they would be able to communicate what they mean and 
pretend by that to mean well. So they want to point out and show off about the fact that they know what's really going on with a certain person and do it in a way where they might resemble the pious. But in doing so, they actually have fallen into backbiting. So through this implicit or this uh, tacit way of speaking about somebody's actions or something about another person and they're not necessarily explicit about what that action may be but in but by them making somebody else understand that there is something wrong here or something that's being discussed then they have engaged in backbiting and there are several ways in which that happens and in the Ihiya Imam Ghazali goes into it in far more detail so if you wanted to read more about that, you would have to go there. And the example that's given here in the Bidayat al-Hidayah, uh, he says that if somebody, oh, and I just want to point out that he doesn't mean exclusively the scholars, but he means anybody who might resemble the scholars in that type of backbiting. Okay, so he mentions the scholars as an example of what it would look like, but other people can certainly copy that and act in the same way. And that would be you or me or anyone else who's not in that category. So he says, be aware of copying them in this. And he says, that's when you would say, or when it would be said to you, oh, how's so-and-so? So somebody, you meet someone, oh, hi, how are you doing? Somewhere, cool, blah, blah, blah. Oh, um, how's so-and-so doing? And then you say, oh, in this really sort of pious way, oh, aslahahullah faqad sa'ani. So you say, oh, may Allah rectify him because he's, what sa'ani here means, he's made me sad. So, oh, really? And you say, oh, well, ghammani ma jara alayhi. And I'm so concerned about what's happened to him. Fannas'allahu ta'ala an yuslihana wa iyyah. Right, so then you say, so we ask Allah to rectify him and to rectify us, okay, um, because uh, the person's trying to show that, uh, you know, somebody has done something wrong and they're trying to make a person understand that, but at the same time they're trying to show that they are not like that and that they avoid that type of thing and that they're more pure. So Imam Ghazali says that uh, this actually involves two really ugly and habith and foul types of behaviors and he says the first is that that speech becomes riba so it becomes backbiting if the implied understanding or what the person is trying to make the listener understand is understood so once there's an understanding like oh really oh what's that person done oh so it's clear that something negative is being said about them even if it's not explicitly stated then that has already cast the person into backbiting and then the second one is this person praising themselves through that statement that oh i'm not like that so you know i can see it in somebody else because i know what's going on but i'm not like that i, I wouldn't do that um, and so these are two really ugly qualities that a person immediately brings into this particular action. And then he says further in the Ihya and Imam Jawi mentions it here as well, that it's not just two ugly character traits that are being brought in here, it's four. And he mentions another two, which, is, which are Riyya, which is showing off. And also the speaker's uh, opinion of themselves that somehow they are rectified and that somehow they 
um, somebody who wouldn't have such a fault or who wouldn't have such a flaw. And he says that um, that this is uh, the, the the where this springs from is a person's ignorance, and it's an ignorance obviously about themselves, which Imam Ghazali will go into as well. But he says it's the type of ignorance or the type of way in which a, a, per, a person thinks they're worshipping Allah or thinks that they're doing good, um, but actually shaitan's just playing with them. Okay, and he says, how does shaitan play with a person in that situation? He says, because he makes the person think that they're being pious by mentioning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name. And he uses Allah's name as a, a tool, if you like, to try and uh, show or explicate uh, something or like a fault in another person. And so this is shaitan playing with you, where you think that, okay, you know, I can mention something without saying what it is. I can let someone understand. I can purify myself from that. I can show um, how rectified and above all that I am. And at the same time, I can use Allah's name to prove that. And so that is really the height of ignorance and that is really the height of ugliness where you can stoop so low but think that you're going so high because now you can make a dua for that person. So this is the subtleties in backbiting that we need to be aware of. Then Imam Ghazali says that if you say, you know, may God make him better or may Allah rectify him and fix him up, if you really wanted to pray for him then do it in secret do it in private and Imam Mujawi says do it at the end of every salah or at the end of every prayer because that's one of the times when dua is mustajab when it's answered so if you really were concerned about person then about a person then be sincere and be true in your seeking their rectification and you don't make it public or broadcast or insinuate uh, something about them to others and he also says that if you really were concerned, then you wouldn't make a public declaration about the person, but you would conceal their fault or their flaw. Then he goes on and says, to restrain yourself from backbiting, the statement of God is sufficient. And this is an ayah and uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. وَلَا تَغْتَ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا Okay, so do not backbite one another. Would any of you like to eat the flesh of his dead brother? Surely you would loathe such an act. So this is where this uh, concept of backbiting, of eating the, the flesh of somebody else comes because when you speak badly about somebody and you degrade their honor uh, by doing that, then it's like when you hurt a person's honor, it says it's as though you have, uh, it's, as, it's as though you've taken from their blood and their flesh because the honor of a person is something that is very deep and intrinsic to their humanity, um, just as a person's blood and flesh is necessary for their physical body and for them to be alive. And so a person feels pain in their heart um, by having their honor degraded just as they feel pain in their body when their flesh has been cut. And 
this is like this should be enough for us he says and if we don't take heed of that um, then we really have some problems that we need to overcome then he says that there's one matter which would stop you from backbiting against Muslims if you were to ponder it so he counsels us to examine our own selves and consider whether we have any outward or inward flaw and whether we're committing any sin secretly or openly and he says when you know about the presence of any fault or sin in you then do understand that the other person's inability to free himself from the fault which you attribute to him is just like your inability to free yourself from yours and his excuse is like your excuse just as you dislike to be shamed and have your own faults mentioned by others so too does he if you conceal his faults god will keep your defects hidden but if you disclose his faults and thus disgrace him god will give sharp tongues power over you to impair your reputation in this world and disgrace you in front of the whole of creation on the day of judgment subhanallah uh, that's that's quite clear i think and doesn't Imam Jawi really doesn't have that much of a commentary on that here um, but he says that um, he mentions like kind of a saying here he says that Abu Hurair that he said it um, oh sorry the first one is Ibn Abbas and he said that if you want to mention the faults of your friend then remember your own faults so this is now a, a textual evidence okay so when Imam Ghazali and uh, the great scholars come with these types of counsel for us and these um, analysis of situations and of the nafs they don't just take this from anywhere they actually take it from textual sources so there are a couple of those mentioned here and that would be one of them and then um, there's another one which uh, Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu uh, mentioned and this is in Ibn Mubarak's book on Zuhud so it's certainly not in the collection of the the six books and of the most sound hadith but still it's uh, something which has uh, truth and wisdom in it and he says that you're able to see the splinter in the eye of your brother but you're unable to see the trunk of the tree in your own eye so what that means of course pretty obvious is that it's easy for you to look at the, for, the uh, faults and the flaws and the defects in other people but because of this massive thing blocking your own vision you can't even see those uh, faults in yourself and then when it comes to being disgraced on the day of judgment uh, then there's another hadith which means that uh, or which says that all of those who you spoke ill of and who you engaged in backbiting in the dunya on the day of judgment when your hisab when your account um, is being determined and being judged they will be brought to you as a corpse those people and they will be put in front of you and you will be told to eat them now as you ate them in the dunya and you will be forced to bite into their flesh whilst you are screaming and 
um, in an absolute state of horror. So this is a reference to what that means, that you will be disgraced in front of the whole of creation on the Day of Judgment for your engaging in speaking about other people in a, in a backbiting way here in the dunya. So uh, we've nearly finished this section. And then Imam Ghazali says that if on examining your outward and inward aspects, you are not aware of any fault and imperfection in them, okay, your outward or inward, um, either in religious or worldly affairs, then know that your ignorance of your own flaws is the worst of all forms of stupidity. And clearly there is no fault greater than stupidity. If God wills good for you, he will give you the ability to see your own faults. And looking at yourself with the eye of satisfaction is the height of stupidity and ignorance. If, however, you are truthful and sincere in your opinion about being free from flaws, then be grateful to God for this blessing and do not corrupt it by rebuking people and ruining their honor, for these are among the greatest faults. So again, that's fairly clear. Um, and basically the, the main point that Imam Ujawi uh, highlights with this paragraph is that if a person looks at themselves and doesn't sense any type of imperfection in anything about them, inwardly, outwardly, deen or dunya, then there's a problem with their akal, with their intellect, and that they haven't really understood who they are and the essence of themselves as a human being, of their weakness. They haven't understood their purpose for being here, and they, they really haven't got a proper grasp on their own um, intellectual capacity to understand and they are somewhat impaired or corrupted in their mind. So that's made pretty clear by Imam Ghazali's statement. Um, and if a person looks at themselves and thinks how fantastic they are, then straight away they have enough problem and they need to go back and really take a good look at themselves. And this is a, a lifetime's journey. And as you get older and you look back on your youth and you cringe about how arrogant you were or how ignorant you were, especially your teenage years, um, and then sort of in your 20s or whatever where you thought you could do anything and everything. And, and as you get older and you become a bit wiser, then you realize that that type of behavior or that type of attitude is obviously very flawed, doesn't really get you anywhere, and that you need to look at yourself and correct yourself because you're going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And inshallah, we want to be of those who meet him with a kalbun salim, with a heart that is sound and with a heart that has, uh, that has been purified of the faults of the lower self and with a heart that is uh, purely seeking and yearning him and his Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And Imam Ujawi tells us that most people are ignorant about their own faults. And so the best thing to do is to busy yourself with your own faults rather than with the faults of other people. Then finally, there's a little bit of advice that Imam Ujawi gives. And he says, so what to do um, in order to correct yourself? So. Inshallah, we all realize that we do need rectification and we do need improving. And so this is the, the great part about having a commentary. And this is part of the service that the scholars and the commentators have given to the Ummah by their, by their service to the books of the scholars. They actually provide for the Ummah, for the readership and for the lay people 
um, a really expansive and comprehensive way of understanding the scholarly tradition. And so what he puts in here is four pieces of advice, which we'll just mention briefly. He says that if you find and you know that you have faults and flaws in yourself, then consider the following. The first is to sit with a sheikh, an upright sheikh, so a murabbi, so a spiritual sheikh who does have the ability or who does have the insight to see the flaws in other people. And you should follow that sheikh's advice with mujahada, um, so with striving and struggling against your lower self. So you should listen to them if they tell you you need to improve this and that and really strive to follow that advice. And you might think, well, okay, um, you know, how would they know necessarily? But this is some of the karamat, some of the not miracles that prophets get, but miracles that are given to the awliya, to the friends of Allah, where they are actually able to see these things in other people. And one of the ways in which that happens, and it's said that the salihin can actually see the sins of a person in their wudu water. So we know that when we take wudu, then we are washing away the minor sins from our limbs. And those who have this basira, and those who have this insight into people can actually see those sins or see the the water being um, sullied by the sins uh, as a person takes wudu. The second point is that you should find a practicing or a devoted, religiously devoted and practicing friend who is also truthful and make that person look out for you and make that person observe you and tell you about your states and your actions as they look at them and tell you about what needs to be corrected. So if they see something in you that they dislike, then you've appointed them to tell you what it is and then you should try and pay attention and correct yourself accordingly. The third is that you should take your advice from your enemy. Okay, this is an interesting one. So an enemy being somebody who might not particularly like you. Because if you're able to really take your enemy's opinion on board, then you will find that there's something in you which is um, uh, repulsive to other people or that repels other people. And also he says here that it's very easy just to brush that off and say, oh, they're jealous of me or they don't like me because they know that I'm better than them at this and that or the other thing. But if a person is really sincere and wants to know what's wrong with them, then they will listen to what the enemy has to say and they will try and uh, fix that aspect of themselves. And then the fourth is to mix with people generally and to see what is blameworthy amongst people in general. And then look at yourself and think, oh gosh, do I do that? Um, and then compare yourself to those because, as it says that, So for indeed, the believer is a mirror for another believer. So you should be able to see reflected in other people something about yourself and improve on that, inshallah. So that's our lesson for today. This fourth point, inshallah, we will continue with next week inshallah wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh